This morning we're still in Ephesians 5. Uh, last week we looked at Ephesians 5 verse 21, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And we saw how being subject to one another in the fear of Christ dealt with the whole marriage um, context from verse 22 to verse 33. It then deals with the parenting context, the chapter 6, first uh, few verses. And then it deals with the workplace context. Um, did we decide we couldn't get lights up here even manually? We can't? Okay. I was just looking for a flashlight, that's all. All right, um, well, well, we'll do the best we can. Um, as we think about now, this morning, the marriage context, we're going to look at marriage for a while. The role of the wife comes first, and then the role of the husband next time we're together. Uh, and so we'll, we'll deal with that, and then we'll move to parenting as well. But this morning, I want us to think about uh, the husband-wife relationship, since that's the next thing God mentions there. And I realize we've got single parents in here, and single parents, uh, they have my highest praise, because the single parent has to do both the work of the husband and the wife, regardless of their gender. In a uh, context, if they're single, if, in the marriage context, if they're single, they've got a parent, they've got to uh, live life doing everything the husband does, everything the wife does, and they proved that they can pull that off. Look, yes, thank you. Um, and, but that's not the ideal. And God deals with husbands and wives. And so when a husband gets married to a wife, a wife gets married to a husband, in God's context, that's a male and a female are joined together. Even though they could have done everything by themselves, now they have to decide who does what, who takes out the garbage, who deals with the maintenance of the house, who takes care of the toilet problems and the car problems and the grass problems, or who pays the bills, who raises the kids, who trains the kids, who does what. I mean, there's so many things that happen in the 90% of our lives nobody sees but our spouse. How do we determine who does what and who works all that out? I think God has given us principles in Scripture to figure all that out. Instead of telling us specifically who does what, since both could obviously do it all, what are the principles that guide us in our marriage relationship? And He's given us principles for husbands and principles for wives. There are two primary passages of Scripture that impact this. Ephesians 5 is where we're at. That's one. But I want us to also look at 1 Peter for both the husband and wife roles so that we get these major principles that are in both places. But let me read, first of all, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So we have this principle of submission that's clear in the text. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. We'll look at this some next week uh, or, or the week after. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we're members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be um, joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This ministry is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So we clearly have the principle of submission. We clearly have the principle of respect. And I think implied through the husband's work of presenting his wife without spot and blemish, we have the principle of attractiveness. Now I want you to see these three principles in First Peter. Look at First Peter chapter 3. I got more light over here, not that I care about this side any more than that side, but I do like to see. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. In the same way you wives be submissive. Uh, both Ephesians and Peter start with wives, and they start with submission. In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in the same way in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she's a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Um, we have gender-specific functions given to us in Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter chapter 3. Things that God specifically has designed for wives to do. Things God has specifically designed for husbands to do. And if we understand those gender-specific functions, male and female functions, then we can have these wonderful marriages God has designed for us and wants us to have. We've got to obviously get beyond the cultural uh, gender wars that are happening all around us, trying to tell us that we're all the same. We're not the same. We're male and female, and God has designed us with specific gender-related functions. So let's get beyond that and let's see what it is God wants wives to do, what it is God wants husbands to do, so that we can have the wonderful marriages he's designed for us. <clears throat> it reminded me of an old blonde joke. You know, do they still tell the blonde jokes? I don't hear them as much. But anyway, this is a fun one I never forgot. Um, and um, it was uh, husband frustrated with his, with his wife at some point. And he says, 
He said, I'm so frustrated. How is it possible that God made you so beautiful and yet at the same time so dumb? And she shot back immediately, well, God made me beautiful so you would marry me. He made me dumb so I would marry you. <laughs> and I thought, she's not so dumb after all. You know, she, she gets the fact that God has made us different. They both did. That God has designed male and female different. And there's differences about us that attract us to one another. If we understood how those genders work together, we could have wonderful marriages. I want us to have that. And three things he gives us for wives in both passages. And I think we're going to see when we take the Lord's Supper that even men, this relates to all of us too. But three things for women this morning for you to focus on. How to be a godly wife. Submissive behavior, number one. Attractive adornment. Number two, and then respectful behavior. Number three. So you just think submission, attractiveness, and respectfulness. And everything you choose to do in life with your husband, if you think these three things, it's going to contribute to a wonderful marriage. And we'll we'll have three for the husband as well as, as we think how these go together. But first of all, let's look at the wife. Submissive conduct. You see it starting in Ephesians 5, verse 22 and 23. Wives, so be subject to your husband. You see it in 1 Peter several times. It begins with verse 1. Be submissive to your husband. You see it again in verse 5. Being submissive. The Old Testament women were submissive to their husband. Um, So what does this mean? This submission to, to husbands. Well, most women just immediately say, well... I get that, I understand that, and I would be glad to do that, to be submissive. If only I had a husband I could be submissive to. So let's just hit right off the bat. Is that what the text says? Neither text says that. Be submissive if you have a husband who's perfect and beautiful and wonderful in every regard. It doesn't say that. And yet that's frequently what I hear from women. Well, I'd be glad to be submissive if he would just be the kind of person I could be submissive to. No, the text says be submissive. And 1 Peter, which is why I want us to spend most of our time there, 1 Peter even makes it very clear. If you have a husband who's disobedient, so you have a husband who is not obedient. He's not obeying. Obedient to what? To the Word of God. He's not a godly husband. He's an honorary old cuss. He's a jerk. He doesn't get it. If you've got that kind of husband, God says, I want you to be submissive. And then you say, whoa, that's a pretty big deal. But that's precisely the kind of husband God is dealing with, with women. You don't wait till you have a husband that's easy to be submissive to. You don't wait till he gets it. You be submissive to your own husbands, even if they're disobedient to the word. So, um, are you being submissive to your husbands? Easy test. I, I don't, you don't have to define this uh, very precisely. 
you're wondering, you know, okay, I get that. I'm supposed to be submissive. Are you doing that? If you want to know, just ask your husband. Just ask. He knows. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't have to be able to define submission very precisely either, but he knows what it's not. Every husband does. He gets it. Um, if you don't want to ask him, get a friend, get a pastor, get a counselor, get anybody to ask your husband privately. Can you give me examples of your wife being submissive? Is your wife submissive? He can tell you like that without thought whether you are or not. He gets it. Um, he understands that he's been given some responsibility in the marriage that his wife needs to be submissive to. And God is saying, wives, be submissive. You know, I, I've, I, it comes to my mind this, this particular lady that uh, was a leader in the church, still is, I, I suppose, in a different church, so you don't know her. I'm not going to pick on anybody here. Uh, and, but, you know, she's the characteristic, stereotypical uh, women in the church leader, Bible study leader, Sunday school teacher, nursery worker, that kind of woman that everybody would respect. Well, this is a godly woman. And she had a non-Christian husband, so he fits this category, 1 Peter 3. He's being disobedient to the word. And she's constantly, constantly, constantly nagging him, you know, at least on her birthday, come to church. At least on Mother's Day, come to church. And when he does show up out of love for her on her birthday and Mother's Day to come to church, regardless of what the preacher's preaching on, you know, she's poking, you need to hear that, you need to hear that, you need to hear that. Now, you ask me, go to that husband privately and ask him, is your wife submissive? What's he going to say? He's going to uh, not, not, not at all. She's constantly pulling me, nagging me, directing me. I mean, he gets the fact that she's not getting submission. That's not a principle, it seems, that she's running under. It's not the first thing that comes in her mind. My job as a wife is to be a submissive helper to my husband. Uh, nowhere does the Scripture encourage wives to just constantly preach and teach and nag husbands. Matter of fact, it said in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, it says if you've got this disobedient husband, he's disobedient to the Word, you can win him to the Word, win him to obedience. How? Without a word. Wives, this submission is something you do without speaking. You can win him without a word by your behavior. So, submission is not passive. It's not something you wait to do after he's done something first. Submission is a behavior. It's something that you actively pursue. It's something you're doing. And it's so active, he sees it. And it, it's something God uses as a tool to change him and direct him into obedience. Um, write down, submission is not passive. Submission is not waiting. Submission is not being still. Submission is a behavior. It's an action. It's an active term. It's something that's constantly going on in the marriage uh, relationship. Matter of fact, the word when that he may be one, 
It's a military term. In other words, you've got a husband that is not being obedient. He's not acting like the best of husbands. You're supposed to declare war. Your goal in life is to win him to obedience. And you declare war by constant activity of submissive behavior. It's not a passive thing. It's not, God doesn't say, you just wait and pray for a godly marriage. He didn't say that. He didn't say, you wait and pray for a godly marriage. He said, you get active. You start behaving as a submissive wife. Your behavior, not your prayers here, your behavior is what wins him to obedience. It's the behavior he sees. He can observe, and everybody else can observe it too. That's why I said, just ask. If you don't know whether or not you're doing this yet. And they can tell you whether or not you are. And they can provide examples. Our behavior needs to be submissive behavior. Um, we're not called to sit still, to read, to pray here. It's, yeah, sure, you should read your Bible and pray. But the, the marriage principle is submissive behavior. And that's the first principle for wives. Second, attractive adornment. So move on. Second, it says, verse 3 of 1 Peter, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. I can't forget a country preacher I heard on the radio. He's preaching about this passage. You know, and he um, gets to verse 3 and he says, Okay, women, listen. Don't braid your hair, uh-huh, and don't wear gold, uh-huh, and don't wear jewelry, uh-huh. And I kept waiting, and don't wear dresses, uh-huh. But he didn't say that. And I said, oh, so you want them to wear dresses. What gave you the right to stop in the middle of the verse? And I got to think, I said, preacher, you got it wrong. The passage is not saying women can't wear jewelry. It's not saying women can't braid their hair any more than it's saying they can't wear dresses. If you'll let them wear dresses, read the sentence, and you got to let them wear the jewelry and braid the hair. That's not what the passage is about. The passage is about a balance of attractiveness between external and internal. The very next verse makes that clear. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. And then it gives the example of Sarah. For in in, in this way in former times, holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. So he's saying... You want to win your husband, right? Submissive behavior, that's where you start. Second, attractive adornment. Typically, when you want to win a man, when you declare war on getting a man's attention, you turn their head and their heart by external dress. Fix your hair, put on the bracelets, the jewelry, the dresses. And he says, wow, whoa, you know, what just happened here? That's your default. That's your go-to mechanism. Peter says, I get that, but don't, let, don't stop there. 
Don't let it be merely external. Also let it be the internal. And rather even primarily the internal. Because that's so precious in the sight of God. This quiet and gentle spirit. And then he illustrates the whole thing saying, this is what women have been doing for years. And he specifically points out Sarah. So let's go to Sarah just so you see the balance there. And you understand this principle a little bit further. Look at Genesis chapter 24. Here is Abraham and Sarah. And they're seeking a wife for their son Isaac. Genesis 24. And notice both the external and outer, the outer and the inner adornment. Uh, Genesis 24. Abraham told a servant, go find a daughter for my son, Isaac. Genesis 24, excuse me, verse 22. When the camels had finished drinking, you know, the servant goes, goes to the well, um, and uh, Rachel starts coming up, or Rebecca starts coming up to the well. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring, weighing a half shekel, and two bracelets for her wrist, weighing ten shekels and gold. What, what's he doing? He's adorning the outward appearance of Rebecca. Abraham has put jewelry and fine stuff on the camel. Abraham knows that if my servant's successful in getting a woman in Cana for my son Isaac, I don't know how she's going to be dressed. I don't know how she's going to look. But I want to knock his socks off. Take some jewelry. Take whatever you got to do. When she comes back, I want her to be dressed up, so to speak. That's external stuff. The women of old knew external stuff was not wrong. Matter of fact, the only time you have in Scripture the externals being taken away is taken away in times of judgment. Where God takes away the jewelry, takes away the dresses, takes away the makeup because they're being judged and deported to, uh, ex- in, in exile. Well, look at the inner, uh, in, inward beauty. Uh, Genesis 24, verse 3 says, I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. What's he saying? I want a covenantal gal. I want a gal that worships my God. I want a God, I, I want a gal whose heart is turned on to, to God. I don't want one who serves the idols, serves another God. So he's he's dealing with the internal heart as well as the external look of the woman. And first Peter's saying the same thing. This has been happening since Abraham. That there's an inner beauty. And there's an outer beauty. You should be inwardly equally yoked to one another. Your, your obedience should be to God first. And then there's this external beauty that God has designed in male-female gender. This attraction externally that Scripture never denies or uh, does away with. But there's this in, inner beauty 
that should be primary. It's precious in the sight of God. And I won't take the time, but you can look up, do your Bible search for the word beautiful or beautiful in face and appearance or in appearance and form. Um, God mentions Sarah is beautiful in form and appearance. He mentions Rebecca is beautiful in form and appearance. He mentions Esther is beautiful in form and appearance. He mentions Song of Solomon's wife is beautiful in form and appearance. Our external form, there's a feminine form that's beautiful to God. He doesn't reject it. He's blessed by it. He says she's beautiful in form and appearance. God notices it. Men notice it. God and Peter and Ephesians say, men get that. You want to win the husband? Deal with your attraction, yes, outwardly. I know you get that. But also deal with your attraction inwardly, because they get that too. And if you want to win them, you need both, the outward as well as the inward attractiveness. Let us have it in balance. We need to teach really from... Uh, our youngest kids, that our outward appearance is not so much about us. It is, it is about those that we're going to meet and spend time with. That we prefer others is more important than ourselves. So, so how can we dress in such a manner to enhance our ministry to other people? And I think the principle in Peter is, women, how can you dress to be attractive to your husbands? Yes, but not just outward attraction, inward attraction. But to understand that we have a ministry. Wives, what's your ministry to your husbands? Or all of us, what's our ministry to others? In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you have that principle with Paul says, I minister to different kinds of people. And I'll just share it with you real quick. Um, it's just a principle that that applies to our dress as well. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, beginning at verse uh, say, uh, 23, says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control. See, I didn't, I didn't start uh, soon enough. Um, verse 19 says, I'm free from all men. In other words, men don't cause me to do what I do. But Verse 20 but to the Jews, I became a Jew. And he mentions to the Greek, I become a Greek. In other words, I change what I wear. I change how I talk sometimes, the words I use, the illustrations I use, based on my audience. And in the same way, you wives, you will change what you wear. You'll change what you do based on your audience. Your audience is your husband. And there's a... And we teach our kids, learn how to dress in such a way as to present yourself effective in ministry. And Peter's clearly talking about women. I want you to be effective wives, effective in your ministry to your husband. So submissive conduct, attractive adornment. And let's go to the inner adornment and talk about that a minute. Seek to win a man through inward beauty. In other, say it this way, enhance your ministry. Through internal beauty. You pretty much know how to do the external. Enhance it through this imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Uh, the word spirit there means strength. 
told my wife it would be a great title for a book, A Gentle and Quiet Strength. That's what God is calling women to, a gentle and quiet strength. You should be strong and mighty at this inner beauty that's being spoken about here. Uh, what is it? It's, it's certainly antithetical to the nagging contentiousness uh, that I described earlier. Let me show it to you from Scripture. Look at Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21 speaks about the contentious woman. Verse 9 says, It's better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. This woman describing this one who's always asking, nagging, directing. Uh, Verse 19 said, It's better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. Uh, Look at chapter 27, verse 15. A constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. I mean, you you get the illustration there. It's just this constant, doesn't have to be loud, this constant dripping, just irritating, nagging. God says, you just don't want that in a wife. What do you want? You want a quiet, gentle strength. You don't, any, when you think of strength, sometimes we think, I need to be loud. I need to be forceful. Anybody can get loud and holler. Anybody can do that. That doesn't make you precious in the sight of God. It's, it's this person who can withstand a lot, but who's strong and knows where she needs to go and knows what she needs to do. Regardless of the obstacles, regardless of all the things that are being, that are accomplished, all the multitasking that's going on, she's, she's steady. She's strong. She's in quiet pursuit of clear activity. Um, it's, it's, that's, and, and that's so attractive. You see that in a woman. You say, how do you hold it all together? How is it that you're not, you know, pulling your hair out? What, what, what is your secret? And it's so attractive when you see that, that quiet, gentle, strong human being that it, it pulls you in. And that's what he's, he's asking of women to, to develop. Um, not a, a proud haughtiness that you've got it and you need to scream it to, to others. But it's, it's a clear understanding of what God has called you to do and you're just going about it without grumbling, without complaining, without nagging, without vexing, you know, just wringing yourself to death. It's, 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 it's something that's just really the filling of the Spirit is giving you. Um, this submissive conduct is really, I think, just winning a husband with just goodness and love and this attraction of you just keep doing that no matter what life throws at you. And it's like, wow, this is so beautiful. It's so wonderful. It draws you in. Let me read the Proverbs 31 woman. It's just 
you see both the outward, inward attractiveness of this woman. Um, and I, want, I just want you to see the flesh and blood example of it. Proverbs chapter 31, beginning at verse 10. It says, An excellent wife who can find. Her worth is far above jewels. You'll get the impression she's got jewels here. And I think it's, it even starts off saying, She's attractive, this excellent wife. She's got the bracelets. She's got the rings or whatever. She, but her attraction goes far beyond this outward attractiveness. Far, her worth is far above the jewels. The heart of a husband trusts her, and he will have no lack of gain because of her. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. So you see that, that goodness. She just submitted to being good in his presence. Verse 13, she looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She's like a merchant. She is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises also while it's still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. And she considers a field. She buys it from her earnings. She plants a vineyard. So she's got commercial activity outside the home. But you see, she's very committed to the home primarily. Uh, verse 17, she girds herself with strength. See, that's one of these attractive qualities. Uh, and he makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp, unlike mine, does not go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. She stretches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of the snow for her household. For all her household are clothed with scarlet. Now look, look at that. If she's clothing her household with fine garments, you get the impression she's probably dressed, knocked out too. She knows how to dress herself, her family. Verse 22, she makes coverings for herself. Her clothing's fine linen and purple. Her husband's known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She plies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity. You see, outer beauty comes right back to inner. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her, saying, My daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. What a, a, a wonderful illustration of a woman who gets it. She's got this clear submissiveness to God, His Word, to her husband, she's got this clear attractiveness outwardly as well as inwardly. Her husband can give you examples. Like I said, she didn't have to defend herself. So, well, you know I'm submissive. Ask him. He can tell you. Ask the kids. They can tell you. Well, I've got this inner beauty. Just ask them. They can, they can tell you. See, it's, it's, it's this constant behavior that people can see in that 90% of lives that only your family sees. 
they see it. Those are the principles of living life in the home is this submissive conduct, this attractive adornment that's an inward character as well as an outward um, presentation to those that you're around. And it's precious in the sight of God. Let me move to the third characteristic God gives women. Submissive conduct, attractive adornment, and respectful behavior. It's mentioned in Ephesians uh, several times. Uh, It's summed up in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33. says, and wives must see to it that she respects her husband. In other words, if you, if you miss everything else, it's, it's, it's kind of the way it's structured here. If you miss everything else in Ephesians 5 that wives are supposed to do, wives, see to it that you respect him. Because that's going to be huge. Don't miss that one. And you get over in 1 Peter, and he says it twice as well. Uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 2, he says, They observe your chaste and respectful behavior and it comes up again with Sarah and Abraham in verse 6 this respectful relationship where she's calling him Lord and um, the whole concept of obedience and I'll get into that what that means in just a minute but I can't tell you enough women when I ask men what's the problem and their answer 99.9 percent of the time is she just doesn't respect me We've got to understand that God made the male gender with this huge need for respect. And if it's not supplied, he's going to know it. And it's going to be something that damages the union you're trying to establish. You've got to see to it that you demonstrate and show respect. It's this huge principle uh, that's in the text everywhere you go on male-female relationships. Now, what's going on here with Sarah, verse 6, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. This passage is not telling you wives that you have to call your husband Lord, okay? It's not what it's saying. Sarah did that. The word Lord literally means sir. It's, it's a term of respect. It's a title. Um, it's, it's not, obviously we, we serve the Lord of Lords, that's a title as well, um, but it, it, it's, it's not in that category for husbands, it's just a term of respect, and Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Well, when I see that, I say, okay, well, let me, let me investigate that a little bit. Let's go back and look at, where did that happen? It's in Genesis 18, verse 22, and when you look at it, um, Hopefully it removes the concern that our culture would throw at it. Genesis 18, let me read it. Verse 22, or excuse me, verse 12. Genesis 18, verse 12. Sarah laughed, and this is when God was promising them a son. She's 90 years old. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I've become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord. That's the only place we have her calling him Lord, being also so old. Sir, you're pretty old too. And not just me. The context here is a discussion about God's word, God's truth to them, God's blessing them with a son. You have 
respectful language. Sir, it's not just me here, it's you uh, that God's dealing with too. Um, you don't see this relationship that people assume if you use the word obey or you use the word Lord, we're talking about a master-servant, slavish kind of obedience. That's, that's not what's going on here in Genesis. That's not what God uh, teaches in the marriage relationship. What God is teaching is a principle of respect. It's not a principle of, I mean, obedience in God's understanding here is just, you just do the things that need to be done, that you obey your husband, um, not crazy kind of outlandish. You don't obey everything he says. You don't obey stuff that's contrary to the Word of God. That's a given. You don't obey things that are contrary to the commands of God. That's a given. And when we get to this, the subject of the husband, the husband's to, to only give a command that's a loving command. He's to love his wife like Christ loves the church. So he can only command the kind of things Christ would command. He's not talking about just crazy kind of uh, obedience that our culture says, oh no, I, I don't, don't, don't use the word obey. Don't use the word Lord. It's not about the word obey and it's not about the word Lord. It's about the principle of respect. Regardless of the words you use. The words can change depending on whatever culture we're in. But the principle remains. And it's this principle of respect. How do you treat your husband? Do you treat him with respect? Do you praise him? Do you exalt him? Do you lift him up? Do you build him up? Do you honor him? See, that's all that's respect. I remember asking one of my professors out at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, was Peter Wagner. Peter was a very controversial church growth guru kind of thing. And uh, as he put out principles that were very controversial, he would constantly get negative press. He, he wrote, I don't know, some 50 books. And so the books would get out there and people would criticize. And there'd be article after article back in uh, the, his day in and, and magazines and uh, newspapers uh, criticizing. And... Studying under him one day between class or something, I just asked him, I said, look, I just read another negative piece by you. I said, have you seen it? He says, no, I don't read the negative press. I said, well, who screens that for you? How do you know not to read it? He says, my wife does. I said, well, how does that work out? I, I said, how do, how do you live through this? Because when I get negative letters and stuff, it, it really bothers me for a while. He says, well, the way I've been able to deal with this for the past 30 years is I go home and my wife makes it clear to me by what she says. Something negative has been said, but that she knows they got it wrong and I got it right. She always is in my corner. She always somehow lifts me up. She always somehow fights for me. She always somehow defends me, even though she doesn't know the circumstances. She just assumes I'm right and she praises me. And I said, wow. That's unbelievable that you would have that kind of support. That kind of support has enabled you to just keep going on and on and on. And he started the next class kind of sharing that. And all the, you know, it was mostly men in the room. The men just said, wow, that's so attractive. That's, that's what we want. That's what we crave as men. Somebody who fights for us, who's there for us who doesn't doubt us, but holds us up 
And that's what God's asking for for women. See to it that you respect him. That he gets that above everything else. That he's got somebody on his team. Somebody fighting for him. Somebody that believes in him, even when everybody else might be negative, might be saying something else. Now, women immediately say, oh, (laughs) can't do that. Because if I do that, he'll just walk all over me. Once he finds out that I am with him to that degree, he will ask me for stuff, and he'll just walk all over me. And God follows it up in 1 Peter 3, saying, Be submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah, verse 6, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right. Now, underline this, without being frightened by any fear. Why did he throw that in? Because you fear if you do this. You've been told it's the right thing to do, respect your husband. If you do it, he's going to walk all over you. God says, no, do it anyway. I'll take care of that. Don't fear. Don't fear that your life's going to become miserable by following these principles. God says, I'm going to take care of that. That's going to melt him. That's going to change him. You're going to win the war. You might lose some battles. But God says, I'm going to take care of that. You can do this without fear. It's countercultural. It's not what you see a lot of places. So it's not going to be easy. But you do it, and I'll take care of you. That's God's promise. That life's not going to crush you by following the Word of God. Submission, attractiveness, and respect. The husband's duties are just as important and just as hard. But it's going to be wed together. We'll see how they go together and creates just a wonderful marriage. Ephesians 5, that's like Christ and the church. Now, I want to take you to Revelation 19, verse 7 and 9, as we think about the Lord's Supper and these principles. Revelation chapter 19 says this, Verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. I want you to think about that passage with me a minute. Because you should be getting happy and excited when you see Christ coming to you. If you are his bride, and who's the bride? The bride's the church. So this is where I said this applies to men and women, not just female principles. And all of us, male and female, who are in Christ are the bride of Christ. And when I see Christ, I am going to be really excited to see him if I have made myself ready. And then it mentions how we make ourselves ready. Obviously, it's righteousness, submissiveness to his word. It's this attractiveness. We've got this external fine linen, and it says, and this inner righteous activity. 
And it's this exalting, we give glory to Him, this respect of Him. You know, see how these three principles that God wants for the wife, He wants for His church. That we ready ourselves for Jesus by being submissive to Him, by being attractive to Him, by respecting Him in all things. So as we come to the bride's table with the Lord, the bridegroom, Let's just ask God, God, cleanse me from sin and make me submissive and attractive and respectful of you. And then begin to build those principles in my marriage here on earth so people begin to see this relationship of Christ and His church. Let's pray together. Father, we come to the Feast of the Lamb the remembrance of Christ giving His body for us, washing our sins with His blood. We're sinners. We've messed up. None of us have made ourselves ready for You like we should. So cleanse us. Take away our sin. Take away our rebellion and restore submissiveness. Take away the ugliness, just the lack of attention to being stewards of our bodies and our hearts. And Lord, take away the disrespect and give us a respect for each and every command that you're excited, as excited to see us as we are to see you. Present us to yourself, O God, without spot or without blemish. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.